Falsha, 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 a Harjagil. This is episode 56 of the Rebel Matters podcast. As usual, I am your host, Anne Little Carolan, and today I'm going to go on a wee bit of a solo run for the episode. I'm recording this episode on Wednesday, the 27th of November 2019. It's two days before Black Friday, and uh, there's been a bit of chat about the pros and cons of Black Friday over the last week or so in and around Ackley and I suppose in around the wider community in general because of the fact that we've been bombarded with all of the marketing and the advertising that goes along with Black Friday kind of got me thinking about where the whole thing came from and whether or not it's a positive thing or not. So I'm going to put this episode out on Black Friday as well. Uh, so that it kind of is a little bit timely and you can listen to it and make your own mind up. It's, I guess, just more so a collection of my own personal thoughts and feelings on the matter as opposed to anything else. But after looking it up, it turns out Black Friday is kind of a thing to mark. It came from America and it's a time whenever shops have sealed after their Thanksgiving festivities over in that side of the world and straight off the bat I think it kind of raises a few alarm bells because of the fact that there's this Thanksgiving festivity over in America that's uh, kind of serves the purpose of bringing people together and giving thanks for whatever it is that you want to be given thanks for and then the next day uh, everyone goes out and runs all over each other for uh, to get a deal in the shops and I think actually to be honest because of the fact that it's a consumerist thing and I mean it is a marketing campaign but I think that on a more sinister level that this type of marketing campaign plays on our innate desire as human beings and as social animals to gather together and be festive and when you think about what the purpose of festivals kind of are are an opportunity for people to come together and meet uh, people that they might not necessarily have been able to meet uh, at any other time or as frequently or meet new people uh, put aside the stresses of everyday life learn more about each other share food with each other play music listen to music dance around and uh, be merry without being stressed out and just kind of putting things aside for a while and then being able to come out the other side of it refreshed and rejuvenated and kind of reset and ready to uh, get stuck back into whatever projects you you feel like getting stuck back into or I suppose festivals are places where creativity is creativity is uh, sort of flourishes in a way when festivals are, are organised festivals as in like festivals in a field and also festivals like our yearly festivals and times when we get together and get some time off work and I think that Black Friday really when you think about it it's a marketing campaign that plays on that that innate desire for people to gather and then it's sort of creating another false sort of a festival given the day and name and encouraging people to go out en masse except this time the festival has got nothing to do with coming together or meeting people it's got to do with buying more stuff and 
that kind of got me thinking about whether or not that's a good thing and thinking about uh, the positives and the pros and cons of it. And I suppose on a positive point of view, you go out and get a good bargain. I love a bargain as next as much as the next person. And it is good whenever you, you have something that you really need to buy, you really have wanted to get for a long time that's going to serve, going to be of some value to your life or make things easier for you or replace something that you use quite a lot that's been worn down or broken or stolen or whatever. It's obviously good to be able to get that thing at a lower cost. Um, I guess arguably it's a good time to get stuff that you need and possibly could be a boost for local economies and local businesses. But again, I think that's probably um, disputable as well because at the end of the day, the whole thing with Black Friday is that everything's really cheap. And if things are really cheap, then how come they're not just that price all the time? If a business can sell that stuff at a lower price just for one day or for a few days now, because the Black Friday theme thing seems to have become a bit of a prolonged kind of period of being able to buy stuff at a cheaper price, how come you can't just buy it at that price all the time? You know, uh, like... Are they just putting the prices back up again just for the crack, just so they can get more money out of us after Black Friday? But also for the smaller businesses, a small and medium size kind of businesses and enterprises, I think that there may be a bit of pressure there created by this whole Black Friday thing, the whole idea of dropping your prices as low as you can go. And that kind of concept comes from the bigger companies that can more afford to do that because... They have um, way more volume in stock and would see that as kind of part of their overall market and is to have periods of time whenever they drop their prices really low. And if small businesses are trying to compete with that, I don't think that really adds much value to the small business because you're just trying to compete with these big, massive, multi-billion dollar companies that are able to drop their prices as low as they want to. They could probably give the stuff away on that on, for a couple of days of the year and still be you know like making a profit overall and getting more customers and stuff but small businesses can't do that so it's arguable whether or not black friday is actually a good thing for the local economy anyway but there are definitely a few advantages for example you can get a bargain okay that's fair enough and it's good to get a, be able to get a bargain but um i actually wanted to kind of look at maybe some of the other um aspects of the whole idea of black friday and uh, how it's presented to us and I suppose at the very core of the whole thing about Black Friday is that it is a worldwide marketing campaign. Worldwide as far as, say, definitely the Western countries are concerned anyway, America and, and Europe and Ireland and England and stuff like that. It is a marketing campaign. And like I run a business in Cork City Centre and obviously to learn about marketing is kind of an important part of being able to make a business uh, success but I never went to business school or uh, did any kind of official courses in business or marketing or advertising or PR or anything like that and I was actually doing a podcast last week as part of the Other Voices Festival which in actual fact is a real festival that uh, serves the purposes that a, a festival should serve of bringing people together and giving people a creative space and giving uh local artists the opportunity to, to display their 
their art, whether that's in music or uh, song or dance or whatever the case may be, and to give people the opportunity to come and attend those events, come together as a community to celebrate those things. But anyway, I was doing a podcast as part of that festival with three absolute legendary guests, Emmett Condon, Shifra Quinlan and Ashling O'Reardon. And we were talking about festivals and we were talking about... Um, myself and Emmett actually got talking before the podcast about the fact that the type of business that Ackley is, which is the one that I'm involved in, and the type of business that a lot of people who kind of want to do something alternative are involved in, don't subscribe to the norms of what you would pick up on a business course or a marketing course. And I think that that's a really good thing because then what happens is a business kind of grows organically and it, go, it grows based on what feels right and what feels kind of... Uh, what feels pure to the mission of the business as opposed to saying, okay, this is how you get new customers. This is the standard latest text about marketing or PR. This is therefore, this is what you should do. Because even though I have never done a business course or anything like that, I have read quite a lot of marketing books and uh, business books and things like that. And if you read them, a lot of the time, the which is is the way it's done when you read these marketing books the sort of uh pathway to get new customers according to the you know uh the standard kind of marketing strategy is to first of all uh create some form of a problem in the sense that you want to show people that they need something and then build that up in the form of making that person feel like they really, really need it, need that product or need that service so that they can become a better version of themselves and build that insecurity up as high as you can. Then you create a sort of scarcity so you let on that the product is really limited or that there's only a certain number of spots uh, or that an offer is going to expire real fast. And then you can tell them that there's a really good sort of like opportunity to get it at a cheaper price and that they have to do it before a certain date or else the opportunity will be gone and they'll lose the chance to become a better version of themselves and solve the problem that they have, even though never even thought about it before, have had for the rest of their lives and they're never going to be able to move on with their lives until they solve this big massive problem that the person who's selling the product created in the first place. And then the person becomes a customer. The human being becomes a consumer and they buy whatever product it is. But lo and behold, the product is shite. And actually the person didn't need it in the first place. But of course, the companies who sell the products and don't care about that because they now have got your money or my money or our collective monies and their profits are up and they're happy as Larry. And you think about it, that's what Black Friday is. It's like there's a certain amount of products that are on this one day are going to be cheaper and all the products are based around, the advertising is based around, you know, making you a better version of yourself. And that's completely fucked up because material things cannot make us better versions of ourselves, which I suppose is the crux of the problem here. When we place such an emphasis on material 
products and physical products as things that can improve the things that can improve us improve us as people then we're kind of losing track of the real value and we're and losing track of the things that really can improve us as people it's generally not a new tv or a new car or a new jacket or a new pair of runners and they're all the things that, that get sold in on black friday but black friday you don't walk down the town and see adverts for uh cheaper forest walks or hikes or uh if if really we were if really that i suppose that if marketing campaigns were like that that were designed to make us feel better about ourselves they'd probably just all give us a few extra days off work and uh i don't know free meals or something like that so we could all go and have a eat together and have a couple of drinks together and have the crack and so it really does just kind of promote false desires it builds up these false desires on us and then gives us the opportunity to satisfy those desires by giving us products at a cheaper price for a very short period of time so we all run out that's what that's what happens then we all kind of run out and think that we have this you know i think that maybe you could probably track that back to you know the times whenever we were all living out in you know in the jungle or the forest or whatever and our survival would be really dependent on having food but food wasn't as easy to come by therefore you couldn't just go to the shop and just buy food you had to hunt the food or harvest the food somehow and sometimes the food would be there and then for a long period of time the food might not be there again therefore when the food did come around again there's a big rush to get it because you know that this might not this might be the only chance you'll get to get this food again for a while so you better like fill your boots while it's there and that makes complete sense it's like really logical because obviously you don't want to starve to death when you're living in the jungle you want to get the food and eat as much of it as you can or maybe store some of it for a little while so that you can eat it later on or bring some home so you can share it with your friends and your family and the whole concept of advertising and marketing taps into that sort of primal instinct except the outcome isn't got anything to do with the survival the outcome has got to do with giving a profit to these companies that their sole purpose is, is to make a profit from us so in a way it's a psychological game and there's a whole field of study in that area of the psychology of marketing and advertising and consumerism and buying stuff people go to university to study how to fuck with our brains so they can make us buy more stuff and when you know the sort of code to crack then you can just do that for anything like when you think about how targeted the marketing and advertising is on social media it's so it's everywhere you walk down the city into the city there's billboards you open your phone it's on the phone turn the radio it's there turn the tv it's there to everyone even kids like the way that we're advertised to is a science that has been studied for long, long hours and years by people in universities so that they know exactly what they need to do to fuck with their brains so that we can buy the stuff that they want us to buy. And the, the stuff doesn't need to be... Like they're kind of bypassing, they're kind of sh- short-circuiting our, uh, 
I suppose it's our ability to know what we need and what we don't need because they are they know the psychology behind it. So they can sell us anything. And that's what Black Friday is. Like unless you're gonna to to buy something that you've decided like last year or earlier that you really need to buy and you really need to replace. For the vast majority of stuff that's bought on Black Friday is a load of shit like that you just end up putting into the wardrobe and keeping it for ages and not using it or giving it away or ended up on the scrap heap after a couple of months. Like on a societal level, the idea of creating this scarcity for one day and getting everyone to go out and compete for it, it pitches people against each other. We've all seen those videos from America and different places around the world where the doors of the shop are closed and then there's a massive crowd of people outside and the security guard opens the door and everyone starts clamoring over each other trying to grab like a cheaper TV and people end up getting injured and the cops getting end up getting called and people end up fighting with each other and it's you know it's not really the fault of the people we all have a I suppose an individual responsibility to be aware of this kind of stuff but to a large extent our primal sort of instincts are being messed with by the advertisers and we end up going out and kind of fighting each other for cheap stuff that we don't need that there's a Bob Dylan song and there's a lyric in it that uh Poppers change possessions, each one fighting for what the other has got. And that kind of sums up that uh, sums up that mentality that we end up getting into. It keeps people separate. It really does. Like if you if you go in and you see two people arguing over who's gonna get the last cheap product on the shelf and they start fighting, it like really separates people and creates a, a rift between people and keeps us kind of set as uh individuals as opposed to a collective and we are our natural state is to be together in communities and groups and families and to support each other and when you think about the effects of this type of marketing then it really does keep us separate as people and in a way when I think about it it kind of realigns our values as individuals to be more structured around consumerism and materialism and buying stuff that has been advertised to us as making us better versions of ourselves and in a way we're kind of living and I get the feeling that we're living in a bit of a goldfish bowl especially if you're living in the city it's like we're part of a big science experiment and as the the inhabitants of a city or uh, a country in the sort of western world it's like we're in a big goldfish bowl and the experimenters are looking down at us saying how can we get these people to buy more stuff so that we can become more profitable and then they're turning up the volume and down the volume in certain things turning up the price turning down the price turning up the scarcity turning down the scarcity how long is the offer going to be available for and then seeing what variables they can change so that we buy more stuff so that they can become more profitable and this whole like the whole uh, concept of individualism and getting people just to better themselves and make themselves better versions of themselves i think to be honest it's kind of it's kind of uh, transcended in the many aspects of our lives when you even think about the environmental crisis that we have 
to a large extent, the responsibility for that, as far as individuals, as far as we're concerned, has been placed back on the individual. You know, there's a lot of pushing out there for us to change our individual habits, like recycling and get a bamboo toothbrush and um, don't use plastic bags as much. And all that stuff is really important. I think it is really important to take individual responsibility for how we treat the environment and how we look after the environment and how we treat the planet. But like, let's be honest, like it's also a marketing campaign. Some of the biggest buzzwords that are out there now are sort of sustainability and things being greener. Like when you think about, for example, the electric car market at the minute, so there's a big push to get us to change over to uh, fossil fuel free uh, transport and electrical cars and stuff. Like, think about that. Like, first of all, the electrical car still has to be made and manufactured, and there's a massive uh, unregulated industry in the harvesting of cobalt in, in developing countries and Africa and stuff. And there's there that's basically promoting slavery. Like, there's there's kids uh, like in four, five, six years of age getting. Uh, really badly treated by these overseers to manually um, mine and harvest cobalt so that the batteries for electrical cars can be manufactured and then all the labour that goes into manufacturing a car and bringing it over and then let's not forget the fact that you have to buy these cars as well and I think this uh, this goes back to a, a really bigger question about the psychology behind why we buy stuff and when you look at marketing and advertising the whole thing like they, they the whole marketing advertising sort of field of study worked out I think in the 70s or something like that or the 60s that it's way better to promote something as a product that's going to make you a better version of yourself or um, that's going to give you more personal independence or personal freedom through whether it makes you better looking or uh, more attractive or more efficient or whatever than just saying, oh, th- this is a car that's going to get you from A to B. Uh, it's pretty much the same as that other car, except like, you know, uh, it's a little bit faster. Th- that's not the way cars are advertised. Cars are advertised like this is going to make you uh, sort of more sustainable. It's going to make you more eco-friendly. It's going to reduce your carbon footprint. It's going to make you really sexy because these cars are like pretty you know, they're like space age designed and it's got the latest technology and, uh, but like, that's not what gives you personal freedom and it actually does the opposite. It keeps you down because you have to pay for these things and when you think about personal independence and freedom, it <laughs> like, the opposite of personal independence and freedom is being in debt and whether or not you have to go and get a loan for something or whether you have the money to pay for it, you're still kind of accruing debt if you're buying shit that you don't need and you're you're spending your money on stuff that you think is going to add value to your life when it's not really. And again, that, that just serves one purpose of making profit for the, for the bigger companies and keeps us kind of locked into a cycle of buying stuff, accruing debt, paying the debt, working then to make more profits for someone else and then having to pay the debts back with the money that we earned through the work that we did to make a profit for someone. We're paying 
that money over to make a profit for somebody else and all we're getting in return is something that we didn't really need in the first place. So that going back to the question of personal responsibility for the environment, yeah, that's really, really important. It's it's crucial, like I mean, don't use plastic bags and use sustainable washing up liquid and walk and use public transport, get a bicycle. Uh swap clothes and get good quality clothes that are going to last for a long time that have been sustainably sourced and produced. But also, like, we need to realise that the vast majority of the damage that's been done by the world isn't being done by individual people. It's been done by massive corporations and companies that are burning down the Amazon, using up all the fossil fuels, and, like, and even down to the sort of the whole vegan movement. Like, I don't believe that we're creating massive damage to the world or being real, causing massive animal cruelty by sourcing well-raised and well-looked-after locally-produced meat. But the huge companies that are deforesting the Amazon and those massive industrial farms, that is a problem. So... For me, like it's very important to, as an individual to be responsible, but also not to be blind to the massive amounts of destruction that the big companies in the world are um, doing. I was doing a podcast last week uh, with Jeremy Ling and Siobhan de Pierre down in Anaskal, which is going to be coming out soon. And Jeremy made a really good point. I actually can't remember whether he made it on the podcast or after the podcast. But uh, when we talk about sustainability... Uh, which really is a buzzword these days, what's meant, it's not actually sustainability of for in favour of the planet Earth being able to rejuvenate itself and uh, re- reduce the damage that we're doing to the environment. It's sustainability of our current lifestyles. And that's something that we don't need. I think we should be looking at ways of... ways of creating changes in our lifestyles that have a positive impact on the environment for example not having the need for a car instead of getting rid of your diesel car or your petrol car and then buying an electric car which is going to cost a lot of money which is going to in turn mean that you're going to have to work for way longer hours to pay that off what you're doing there is you're sustaining your lifestyle but you're accruing more debt and therefore you have to work more, and therefore you're less free than you were beforehand. But yet, you have maybe satisfied something, some form of man-made or manufactured guilt that we've been made to feel as individuals in terms of, uh, you know, subjectively not causing more damage to the environment. So there's two aspects of it there. I went off on a bit of a tangent there about that. But in essence, I think that the thing is that like, especially if you're living in a city, we're a captive audience for this massive science experiment of consumerism and how to get us to buy more stuff. And 
when I personally think about that, like it makes me really sad and it makes me angry as well because there's only a certain amount of control we have. We're, we we have individual control over our thoughts, but then again, you go back to that thing of of the psychology of market and advertising and the ability of those companies to be able to kind of short circuit our brains. It you know without trying to sound like too much of a conspiracy theorist, it is a form of mind control in a way. Like when you think about the way that the Facebook advertising was used in the American presidential election and that whole Cambridge Analytica thing. Uh, I think the movie is called Great Hack, the documentary on Netflix. When you, when you see that, that's what it is. It's the same thing. It's just another version of the same thing about uh, finding out what people's insecurities are or manufacturing false insecurities in people and then through the medium of advertising, presenting a sort of solution to people that, uh, like, for example, in the lead up to the American presidential election, there was massive fear built up over, I don't know, like things like terrorist attacks in America and then the solution being presented by Donald Trump in the next market and advertising campaign. So the people, first of all, feel really insecure and all of a sudden see this great white hope and the solution and like, oh, whoa, that's the solution to the problem that I had. I'll vote for that guy. But without realizing that the problem was manufactured and made up in the first place by the same person. And that's what advertising the marketing is and that's what Black Friday is as well. And when I think about it, it takes the creativity out of it. It takes our personal independence away. And you think like our lives are like works of art. Like your life is a work of art. My life is a work of art. And the thing with art is that it's creative. It's creating something that didn't exist before. And we all have this inner creative ability to create. And that's what we should be doing. We should be creating like a once in a lifetime unique experience for ourselves and for the people around us. And going back to the things that going back to the true things that like that, that give that that give us those opportunities and that the true things that give real value to our lives, like getting into nature and connecting with each other as people, following our dreams, uh, doing things that we really wanted to do, traveling, learning new things and reading. All those things offer real value. Like buying stuff in sales is, offers, offers fuck all. Like it, all it does is make someone else rich and makes us poor. So in a way, like things like Black Friday and, they really take the, the the creativity out of life in a way because it just channels us all into trying to run over each other to get into the shop to buy stuff that we, that we don't really need and takes the art out of life as far as I can see. Just kind of why I wanted to do this podcast. But um, So what are the alternatives, I wonder? Like, we're running a swap shop in Ackley First time we've done that, got a little bit of coverage on RT about it. Uh, if you put in Swap Shop Ackley and RT, it'll probably come up on Google somewhere. That just came out today. We're going to have this little swap shop on Friday night, which is tonight, the day that this is coming out, 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock in the social space. And people can bring stuff down and swap it. If you're around, come down, bring some stuff that you would think might be useful for someone else or somebody else might like that you've not been using or you've got the use out of and are no longer using or never used before and swap it, connect with 
people, you know, come down and have a chat with people. And you think about like the real problems that we have. And say in Ireland, for example, like today, we have a massive problem with homelessness. We have massive problems with poverty. Uh, and there is the environmental crisis that's going on all over the world. Uh, there's a housing crisis. Rent is going up. And like, I think that pe- like, as people, like we all, we already know that those are the real problems. The real problems aren't that we haven't got such and such a car or whatever. And I think for me, when I think about alternatives to Black Friday, I think about the things that are negative about it, about people being made more separate from each other and people being feel like made feel like they're there's only a certain amount of a certain thing that they can get and they have to get it real fast and they have to spend their money. Like all those things just kinda like add to the problems. If you're if you're living week to week and you're struggling to pay your rent, then going out and spending your wages on stuff that you don't need is the last is the last thing that you need, like. And it doesn't add any value to your life. So when I think about the alternatives to Black Friday, I also think about the, the main problems that we have in Ireland today and uh, doing things that help to contribute some sort of solution to the main problems that we have and things that that go in direct contrast to the things that are wrong about Black Friday. So instead of people being separate and fighting for whatever's left in the sale, people should come together. Instead of going into the city and spending your money, people should try and go into nature and get out of the city for a while and reconnect with some trees or some water or something like that. Instead of buying stuff, we could try and give stuff or donate stuff. And it goes back to that sort of Zen philosophy of being able to do more with less. Like that's That's a real creative pursuit and something real beautiful if you can do more with less stuff that's a good challenge there something that I've kind of strived to try and do myself actually um, and really when you think about it what the advertisers wanted to do is do do less things with more stuff you got so much stuff and then you end up just sitting in a room full of shit the, the, the we should be trying to do the opposite doing more with less stuff and you know I think I think the Black Friday is a negative thing by and large it's a, an acceleration of our consumerist mindset and I think that if there's anything that positive that can come out of it it gives us the opportunity to reject that and I think it is something that should be rejected we can do stuff that doesn't involve spending money that's why we're having this little swap shop we're going to play some records have free tea and coffee come down and swap your stuff uh, and or just you don't have to bring stuff you can just go down and pick stuff up I'm sure people will be giving their things away whatever is left over we're going to donate it to charity and uh, on Monday and good chance to kind of like just connect with people go to like there's a nice there's a nice actually craft market on uh, in the city centre I think it's in the Triscoll and there's loads of local producers there that are uh, creating stuff with their hands and selling their wares. And I think that your your money spent in places like that is much more 
valuable to the local economy if that's something that's on your mind about the possible benefits of black friday then spending your money with local producers is way more beneficial because that goes directly to people who can use that money to uh you know use that money in their lives to create something for their families or for themselves or rewards their creativity as well directly when you're talking to the person who made the stuff instead of just running into some big multinational company and buying whatever shade it is they want to sell you. Uh, so there's all those different alternatives to, to doing something for Black Friday, which I think is uh, is really good. Well, anyway, this has been an intense <laughs> podcast. It's been an intense fight against capitalism and in favour of personal independence and freedom. But anyway, I'm going to finish it up. As I've been doing the last few podcasts, I'm going to read some Roald Dahl at the end, after the outro music. But I thought it'd be a good way to finish up this wee rant with uh, something that i seen on uh, Damien Dempsey's social media a few weeks ago. And he was talking about uh, the three rules of the Church of Demo before his gig at the Ivy Gardens in Dublin. And I think that those three rules are pretty applicable to all of us in our everyday life. Rule number one. Thou shalt not beat thyself up because plenty of other fuckers will do that for thou. Rule number two. Leave all your worries behind. And rule number three. Thou shalt sing. But that let's I think we should just go off and fucking have a few songs. Have a bit of crack instead of buying into all the bollocks that's out there. And you know on that, there's another thing that Damien Dempsey said, which is going to be the best way to finish up this week podcast. And uh, that's love yourself today. It's a funny thing. Not many people say that kind of shit. I don't know why, but maybe it kind of comes across as being a bit soft in the head or something like that. And they were all supposed to be all hard as nails and getting all my stuff and getting the head down, getting out of bed nice and early and going into work and all. Driving on. But I think it's an important thing to say. Love yourself today. I'll do the best to love myself today. You do the best to love yourself today. Love the other people that are around you. And at the end of the day, what else can we do? But do that and have a bit of crack while we're doing it. Anyway, Akarja Gil, thanks a million for listening to this. Let me know what you think about Black Friday or any of the stuff that we've been chatting about in this podcast. And thanks a million for tuning in. I've got some podcasts lined up. I've got four or five, probably six actually, podcasts in hand and inter- interviews and stuff. I'm going to put them out over the next few weeks. So uh, stay tuned. And uh, thanks for still being a listener to the Rebel Matters podcast, even though uh, there hasn't been one out in uh, the last number of weeks. But things have been busy. Things have been busy. We're trying to get this place on Palestine open, this volunteer gym. We are uh, flat out in Ackley as well. We've got the pop-up shop. We've got, sorry, we've got the swap shop on Friday. We've got the book club every month, the last Thursday of the month. Uh, 
We just had our last long table lunch of the year a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we've got a Palestinian pop-up shop. So you can come there and buy some handmade crafted goods from the West Bank to help us raise money to open this volunteer gym in the Ada Refugee Camp next year. Um, that's on the, 5th, the 14th of December, I think, which is Saturday. And we're also having a little event in the gym on Wednesday night with Salah Ajarma, who's one of the founders of the Lazi Centre. He's going to be down in Cork. It's going to be real nice to have him down and hear about what life is like over there at the minute and also to kind of join the whole circle of getting a someone from the other side of the Palestine community gym project over to Cork so that they can see what we've been doing and we can make those connections even stronger than they already are so any of those events come to them they're on the actually social media pages sometimes they're on the Rebel Matters social media page as well and that's it so as Demo says love yourself today and Bemi Akaint Lefkalua Kardigil. As usual, stay tuned in for the little bit of Roll Dal at the end after the outro music. And uh, I'll speak to you soon. Slang for you, Karja. This is a chapter called The Matron from Roald Dahl's book Boy Tales of Childhood. So all the other chapters of this book so far have been in the preceding episodes of the podcast. So if you want to hear the rest of the book, then just go back and listen to some of the episodes um, before this one. And we're about halfway through the book now, so uh, it's a good crack. Anyway, here we go. Uh, the Matron. At St. Peter's, the ground floor was all classrooms. The first floor was all dormitories. On the dormitory floor, the matron ruled supreme. This was her territory. Hers was the only voice of authority up there, and even the 11 and 12-year-old boys were terrified of this female ogre, for she ruled with a rod of steel. The matron was a large, fair-haired woman with a bosom. Her age was probably no more than 28, but it made no difference whether she was 28 or 68, because to us, a grown-up was a grown-up, and all grown-ups were dangerous creatures at this school. Once you had climbed to the top of the stairs and set foot on the dormitory floor, you were in the matron's power, and the source of this power was unseen was the unseen but frightening figure of the headmaster lurking down in the depths of the study below. At any time she liked, the matron could send you down in your pyjamas and your dressing gown to report to this merciless giant. And whenever this happened, you got caned on the spot. The matron knew this, and she relished the whole business. She could move along the corridor like lightning, and 
when you least expected it, her head and her bosom would come popping through the dormitory doorway. Who threw that sponge? The dreaded voice would call out. It was you, Perkins, was it not? Don't lie to me, Perkins. Don't argue with me. I know perfectly well it was you. Now you can put your dressing gown on and go downstairs and report to the headmaster this instant. In slow motion and with immense reluctance, little Perkins, aged eight and a half, would get into his dressing gown and slippers and disappear down the long corridor that led to the back stairs and the headmaster's private quarters. And the matron, as we all knew, would follow after him and stand at the top of the stairs listening with a funny look on her face for the crack, crack, crack of the cane that would soon be coming up from below. To me, that noise always sounded as though the headmaster was firing a pistol at the ceiling of his, of his study. Looking back on it now, there seems little doubt that the matron disliked small boys very much indeed. She never smiled at us or said anything nice. And when, for example, the lint stuck to the cut on your kneecap, you were not allowed to take it off yourself, bit by bit, so that it didn't hurt. She would always whip it off with a flourish, muttering, Don't be such a ridiculous little boy. On one occasion during my first term, I went to the matron's room to have some iodine put on a grazed knee, and I didn't know that you had to knock before you entered. I opened the door and walked right in, and there she was in the centre of the sick room floor, locked in some kind of embrace with the Latin master, Mr. Victor Corrado. They flew apart as I entered, and both their faces went suddenly crimson. How dare you come in without knocking, the matron shouted. Here I am trying to get something out of Mr. Corrado's eye and, <laughs> and in you burst <laughs> and disturbed the whole delicate operation. I'm very sorry, matron. Go away and come back in five minutes, she cried, and I shot out of the room like a bullet. After lights out, the matron would prowl the corridor like a panther trying to catch the sound of a whisper behind a dormitory door. And we soon learned that her powers of hearing were so phenomenal that it was safer to keep quiet. Once, after lights out, a brave boy called Rag tiptoed out of our dormitory and sprinkled castor sugar all over the linoleum floor of the corridor. When Rag returned and told us that the corridor had been successfully sugared from one end to the other, I began shivering with the excitement. I lay there in the dark and in my bed, waiting and waiting for the matron to go on the prowl. Nothing happened. Perhaps, I told myself, she's in her room taking another speck of dust out of Mr. Victor Corrado's eye. Suddenly, from far down the corridor came the resounding crunch. Crunch, crunch, crunch went the footsteps. It sounded as though a giant was walking on loose gravel. Then we heard the high-pitched, furious voice of the matron in the distance. Who did this? She was shrieking. How dare you do this? She went crunching along the corridor flinging open all the dormitory doors and switching on all the lights. The intensity of her fury was frightening. Come along, she cried, marching with crunching steps up and down the corridor. Own up. I want the name of the filthy little boy who put down the sugar. Own up immediately. Step forward. Confess. Don't own up, we whispered to Rag. We won't give you away. Rag kept quiet. I didn't blame him for that. He had, had he owned up, it was certain his fate would have been a terrible and a bloody one. Soon the headmaster was summoned from below. The matron, with steam coming out of her nostrils, cried out to him for help, 
and now the whole school was herded into the long corridor, where we stood freezing in our pyjamas and bare feet, while the culprit or culprits were ordered to step forward. Nobody stepped forward. I could see the headmaster was getting very angry indeed. His evening had been interrupted. Red splotches were appearing all over his face, and flecks of spit were shooting out of his mouth as he talked. Very well, he thundered. Every one of you will go at once and get the key to his tuck box. Hand the keys to Matron, who will keep them for the rest of the term. And all parcels coming from home will be confiscated from now on. I will not tolerate this kind of behaviour. We handed in our keys, and throughout the remaining six weeks of the term, we went very hungry. But all through those six weeks, Arkel continued to feed his frog with slugs through the hole in the lid of his tuck box. Using an old teapot, he also poured water in through the hole every day to keep the creature moist and happy. I admired Arkel very much for looking after his frog so well. Although he, he himself was famished, he refused to let his frog go hungry. Ever since then, I have tried to be kind to all small creatures. Each dormitory had about 20 beds in it. There were, they were small, these were smallish, narrow beds ranged along the walls on either side. Down the centre of the dormitory stood the basins where you washed your hands and face and did your teeth, always with cold water, which stood in large jugs on the floor. Once you had entered the dormitory, you were not allowed to leave it unless you were reporting to the matron's room with some sickness or injury. Under each bed, there was a white chamber pot, and before getting into bed, you were expected to kneel on the floor and empty your bladder into it. All around the dormitory, just before lights out, was heard the tinkle-tinkle of little boys peeing into their pots. Once you had done this and got into your bed, you were not allowed to get out of it again until the next morning. There was, I believe, a lavatory somewhere along the corridor, but only an attack of acute diarrhoea would be accepted as an excuse for visiting it. A journey to the upstairs lavatory automatically classed you as a diarrhoea victim, and a dose of thick white liquid would immediately be forced down your throat by the matron. This made you constipated for a week. The first miserable homesick night at St Peter's, when I curled up in bed and the lights were put out, I could think of nothing but our house at home and my mother and my sisters. Where were they? I asked myself. In which direction from where I was lying was Landaff? I began to work it out and it wasn't difficult to do this because I had the Bristol Channel to help me. If I looked out of the dormitory window, I could see the channel itself and the big city of Cardiff with Landaff alongside it lay almost immediately directly across the water but slightly to the north. Therefore, if I turned towards the window, I would be facing home. I wriggled round in my bed and faced my home and my family. From then on, during all the time I was at St Peter's, I never went to sleep with my back to my family. Different beds and different dormitories required the working out of the new directions, but the Bristol Channel was always my guide, and I was always able to draw an imaginary line from my bed to our house over in Wales. Never once did I go to sleep looking away from my family. It was a great comfort to do this. There was a boy in our dormitory during my first term called Tweedy, who one night started snoring soon after he had gone to sleep. Who's that talking? cried the matron, bursting in. My own bed was close to the door and I remember looking up at her from my my pillow and seeing her standing there silhouetted against the light from the corridor and thinking how truly frightening she looked. 
I think it was her enormous bosom that scared me most of all. My eyes were riveted to it, and to me it was like a battering ram or the bows of an icebreaker or maybe a couple of high explosive bombs. Own up, she cried. Who was talking? We lay there in silence. Then Tweedy, who was lying fast asleep on his back with his mouth open, gave another snore. The matron stared at Tweedy. Snoring is a disgusting habit, she said. Only the lower classes do it. We shall have to teach him a lesson. She didn't switch on the light, but she advanced into the room and picked up a cake of soap from the nearest basin. The bare electrical bulb in the corridor illuminated the whole dormitory in a pale creamy glow. None of us dared to sit up in bed, but all eyes were on the matron now, watching to see what she was going to do next. She always had a pair of scissors hanging by the white tape from her waist, and with this she began shaving thin slivers of soap into the palm of one hand. Then she went over to where the wretched Tweety lay, and very carefully she dropped these little soap flakes into his open mouth. She had a whole handful of them, and I thought she was never going to stop. What on earth is going to happen, I wondered. Would Tweety choke? Would he strangle? Might his throat get blocked up completely? Was she going to kill him? The matron stepped back a couple of paces and folded her arms across, or rather underneath her massive chest. Nothing happened. Tweety kept right on snoring. Then, suddenly he began to gurgle and white bubbles appeared around his lips. The bubbles grew and grew until in the end his whole face seemed to be smothered in a bubbly, foaming, white, soapy froth. It was a horrific sight. Then, all at once, Tweedy gave a great cough and a splutter, and he sat up very fast and began clawing at his face with his hands. Oh, he stuttered. Oh, oh, oh no. What's happening? What's on my face? Somebody help me. The matron threw him a face flannel and said, Wipe it off, Tweedy, and don't ever let me hear you snoring again. Hasn't anyone ever taught you not to go to sleep on your back? With that, she marched out of the dormitory and slammed the door.